Glass Ceiling comes to you from our studio located at the Barangaroo Precinct. Startup Daily would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay respects to their ancestors, both past and present. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Glass Ceiling, a podcast where we look to amplify diverse voices in the tech and startup space. I'm Gina Baldessari and I'm here with my co-host James Ward. Hello, James. Hello, everyone. So, Gina, can you remind me who is our guest for today? So, today's guest is Benjamin Chong, who has been building and investing in online businesses for 15 years now. He's got a whole host of jobs, but uh, among his <laughs> his key roles, he is um, a co-founder and partner at Right Clip Capital, and he is also the director of the Founder Institute. Ben, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Gina. I am sure this is going to be a very interesting chat. So I wanted to start at the start. Sure. Um, so your bio, mm-hmm. I know you you have read mine because the first time I spoke to you, you asked me about it. So now I'm going to ask you about yours. So it says that, um, oh gosh, where is it now? Okay, you're an entrepreneur and investor who's built internet-related businesses for over 15 years. Mm -hmm. So um, I always find it interesting when I um, chat to people who've been in the space for a really long time because I just think, obviously, the internet has come so far. It must have been such a different space, um, you know, when when you started out. So, yeah, I guess what sort of got you you interested in, um, you know, thinking viable big businesses can be built through through the internet back in those days because I'm sure not a lot of people were thinking that. Yeah, I was very fortunate to go to university in the 90s and it was a time where I needed to get sign-off from the dean, that's right, the dean, to get an email address. Wow. So needless to say, it was far easier to get a Hotmail email address than an email address at the University of New South Wales here in Sydney. But even back then... When I got exposed to modems and the ability to dial up to bulletin boards or later dialing up to the internet through an old, (laughs) probably 19.2K modem, I realised this potential of having so many people connected to this network, this inter-network, could be extraordinary. And I was very fortunate, being at university at the time, where I got talking to my business partner back then, who remains a business partner today, about the possibilities, the possibilities of communicating with people on this internet, not only in Australia, but abroad, and then the possibility of transacting, of having commerce, or as it was known then, e-commerce. I think it's still known today as e-commerce, but it was a very big thing, being able to buy goods and services online. So I was very fortunate with Ari back then to start a very fledgling business where we sold mobile phones online. We were the first, I believe, online retailer of mobile phones in Australia in the 90s and managed to grow that to a level of scale. And what's fascinating in hindsight is that the number of people back then who were used to and comfortable with 
buying online with their credit card or whatnot is a far cry from those who are used to buying online with their credit card or PayPal or any device or, or, or payment method today. Yeah, definitely. Funnily enough that we literally just recorded our Startup Meet Corporate podcast looking at uh, innovation in the retail space and talking about just how far like buying online has come because I was saying to Matt that I didn't start buying online until about like four or five years ago and even then I'd ask my friends being like like is it trustworthy like is it okay like am I actually going to get the product delivered that's right Um, well we had to struggle back then with assuring folks that if they bought product online with their credit card their credit card numbers would be safe we had to demonstrate to our customers that we were a legitimate website that we would secure their details using SSL, Secure (laughs) Socket Slayer, and we had to have those trust marks, those symbols of padlocks and the various authentication certificates or security certificates that, that you would have to validate the authenticity of the website. And we had to go through this journey to show consumers that transacting online not only gave them a better experience because we at the time were fortunate to provide a larger range, a wider range of, of, of brands as well as options they could get for the various phones, but also it was easier and convenient because we thought if you bought online, instead of having to go down to your store and waiting and being told to come back again, we would be able to d- deliver, deliver directly to your doorstep, whether that doorstep was at home or the office, and yes, I, I do remember having to, to battle with the, the couriers to, to provide the ability to track and trace where the packages were, and these were nascent days, but a very, very exciting time because I remember looking at what was occurring in the United States, and this was the beginning of the dot-com boom, and you had marketplaces like eBay, you had companies like PayPal, which were preparing to list, and then you had other spectacularly large failures like Pets.com in the US that were raising a whole load of money. Their plan was to change how folks would look after their pets by having pet food delivered to the home. And whilst I think there were a lot of people who were prepared to have pet food delivered to their home, the number of people today who want pet food delivered to their home is significantly more because we're used to it. Yeah. In fact, my, my parents and, 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 and people of my parents' age, I know, spend a lot of time shopping online because of the choice that they get as well as the, the convenience. Yeah, definitely. Is there a little part of you that when you're speaking with companies these days and they say, oh, doing this thing is hard, like... Do you ever go, are you, are you kidding? Like, do you know what I have well, to I go think, through? Well, I, I think it's always hard. Whenever you're breaking new ground, it is hard. When you're setting up that shopping cart, as we did for the first time, it was difficult. When we were talking to the banks to give us access to a merchant facility, that was difficult. When we were talking to the mobile carriers to, to convince them that these young guys should have access to sell their network, that was difficult. And I think today... People who are starting businesses, particularly businesses that have the opportunity to grow large, to have not only Australian but international appeal, do need to work hard. And 
in those early days, there's a lot of bootstrapping. And even when you do receive funding from founders, we like founders to, to be careful with their pennies. Now, we're not suggesting that they don't spend their money, but we want as investors to see that the money is being spent wisely. And we have no problems with spending more and more money so long as it is fueling some growth in the business and it is hopefully building a level of defensibility that allows that business to continue to offer a great product or service to its customers or clients. Yeah, so talking about your investing, how did you move into you know, starting to invest in other companies? I was really fortunate to have learnt many lessons through the process of starting a number of these tech businesses. In 2003, my business partner and I decided to form Right Click Capital, and we used that vehicle initially to invest in some of our own ventures and ventures of close friends. So we put some of our money aside and were able to, to direct it to either projects or businesses that we were starting. And as we became successful in having a number of exits, we were able to apportion more funds to either internal projects that we were running, projects that maybe our friends were running, or projects or businesses that we saw externally. And that was where we got the bug. We got the bug of being able to help folks, not only by putting money into their business, but being able to get alongside them to help them through that journey and as you said it is hard work and for us it can sometimes be lonely and being able to help other people avoid the mistakes that we've made whether it's perhaps having too high a fraud ratio or whether it is spending too much on a particular marketing campaign or whether it is attempting to build too much technology then you can chew I think they're some of the lessons that we've learned in the past around how to build a business with hopefully a higher chance of success. And as we saw some of these companies we invest in go well, we were, we were really positive about being able to invest more of our own money and then later other people's money. I think being able to manage other people's money and invest their money into businesses is a privilege, something we don't take lightly, and we, we, we therefore try, try very hard to, to invest that money wisely. Yeah, and talking about the, I guess, you know, what you look for in a portfolio company, something I found really interesting about the way that Right Click Capital invests is that you get potential um, founders to do a computer-based test um, like a that you developed in conjunction with a psychology professor from a university that um, you know through which you aim to find those with a high level of entrepreneurial DNA how did that come about I find that really fascinating yeah I think there are many people who are fantastic at talking there are others who are wonderfully dressed and then there are yet some who perhaps may not appear on the surface to have all the hallmarks of a successful founder, but deep within are. And that was this journey that we went on a couple of years ago, working with the psychology professor to understand what are some of the key drivers we think are 
in the background to to to, to promulgate entrepreneurial success. And through our journey, working with him and working with some other friends who have been testing a whole bunch of founders, we try to correlate certain character traits that we find during the testing with long-term entrepreneurial success. Now, what, like, what kind of traits sure, might they be? Sure. So, I, I, I need to I need to preface this by saying, <laughs> like any test, there will be error in the test, mm-hmm. like 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 any type of exam or, or test or even contest there there are errors so i'm not saying that the test is completely infallible but these are the things that we consider to have a high correlation and the the, the things that we we like are a high level of fluid intelligence being able to change as the rules of the game change because in uh a technology business, particularly one in a global market, it's very competitive. And if you think the goalposts are fixed all the time, year after year, then I suspect you're in for a rude shock. I think one of the other things that we look for is a level of openness, being open to new ideas, new ways of thinking, different perspectives. If you are completely closed to the prospect of someone else having a competing idea to you, or perhaps your idea of a customer or the world being slightly different, then you may also be in for a rude shock. We also like people who have a level of agreeableness, that is folks who can bring other people along for the ride because no man is an island and we think that no startup is going to be wildly successful with the single founder and no other team members. So therefore being able to bring people around you, and even customers, how about that? To, 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 to your way of thinking, to your perspective, rallying them around the, 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 the product or service is critical. Do, have you had founders um, kind of balk at having to do this test or are they all quite keen to get it done, whatever? gets the funding well that's a great question we have had a couple of founders who have been hesitant have been reluctant to do the test but what i do let them know is that we keep those results confidential that's a really important part of the 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 integrity of who we are as a firm and then the other thing is we're very open to share the results of the test with those who take the test so that generally sparks a level of interest or intrigue in founders because who doesn't want to find out a little more about themselves? Who, who doesn't want to read what their, what their perhaps openness is like or their agreeableness is like or their level of extroversion? So I think for, for those of us who are founders, I think one of the characteristics we like generally is uh, is a sense of curiosity. Is someone curious about asking why? How does it work? In this particular market, why has the same customer been buying from the same supplier for all these years? Is it because the relationship is so good? Is it because the product is so good? Why? And I think people who ask those why questions, those who are curious, tend to have breakthroughs. 
they tend to have breakthroughs in business. They tend to have breakthroughs in being able to attract interesting people around them who are likely to solve problems. And we, 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 we like folks who are curious about themselves, those who want to learn how they can better themselves. So, but yeah, by and large, we've been, we've been able to, to, to get founders to, to take our test. And so I guess like it depends on, on what stage you kind of give the test to them, but has it ever sort of turned you off a potential investment or is it more a case of, say, a result isn't quite as strong in the areas that you'd like? It's more a case of you'll – it's just being able to know that about the founder and know it's something that they need to work on, for example, and you can work yeah, on it with them. Yeah, that's a good question too. What I'd say is that we look at a variety – of data points and the test is one of those data points meeting people face to face spending time with them working through the issues or the, the opportunities that their business faces is another so i don't think there's any one single aspect which will rule you in or out for investment we try to 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 triangulate to, to gather the data and view everything on, on the balance because we also recognise that you can have a bad day when you take the test. I sometimes have bad hair days. <laughs> and Me too, don't <laughs> I? <laughs> and and, 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 and I, I think it's, it's generally better to give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and I guess talking about that, you also launched the Sydney Seed Fund mm-hmm. and investing at the seed level is kind of a different story in terms of you know the risks i suppose what led to to um you know establishing that fund i think it was 2012 2013 that ari and i began chatting with gary Vasante, who at the time was a very well-known very well-known australian startup angel investor and he had a number of successes back then and even more today and we were asking ourselves, wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a vehicle, a fund, that would invest at the very early stage, as the seed is hopefully being planted and sprouts? And, and, and we, we did our research by talking with a bunch of founders, as you do. We were trying to get our product market fit right. We spoke with founders, and founders back then were saying, yes, there isn't enough capital in Australia, particularly at the early stages. We spoke with the universities, we spoke with those who had been through some of the early stage accelerators or incubators, and we also spoke with investors who thought, this sounds really interesting. It is risky because we do know at the seed stage, because you might be pre well, you're at an MVP stage, so you're likely to be pre-revenue. Some folks have different different grades of MVP, as we know. Some MVPs are more more M than <laughs> P, <laughs> and 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 we knew it would be risky, but we we thought we'd give it a go. And I think what is wonderful, certainly what we found back then was a number of Australian investors who said, we need to support this. We want to see more Australian businesses go global. 
and we want to back some great founders. And we've been fortunate in the Sydney Seed Fund portfolio to have had a number of companies that have gone on to to grow their business, to go from pre-revenue to post-revenue to growing revenue. (laughs) I think that's really important. And some of them have taken on additional rounds of financing. And I'll also say that there are some who were not able to get that product market fit or perhaps ran out of time to get that product market fit. Because I think once you do receive funding, once you do take on external capital, there is a race. There is a race sometimes against the clock to spend that money wisely, to post certain objectives, deliverables, metrics that allow you to work out do you have this product market fit and then if so, are we able to keep going by funding it organically? In other words, with the, 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 the money, hopefully the cash flow that comes in from your customers or will you need to go to investors to take additional capital? Now, generally, you need a bit of both and... Of course, in life, it's one of those things. If you have lots of money coming in, you have lots of customers, well, you'll have investors who want to give Mm. you money because they're thinking, wow, I can help this company grow. And because they have lots of customers, my risk is somewhat reduced. I think for us as investors, what we're trying to look for is a a risk-adjusted return where the potential is large if the company is able to pull it off and pull it off not only in Australia but globally, leveraging perhaps some of our international networks and friends, but they're able to, 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 to do so with, with investors' money. Mm. And when the risk doesn't pay off, I guess, for want of a better phrase, what's, what's that like as an investor? What I guess talk us through like the thoughts or, or feelings to, to know that a company is shutting down. It's sad. It's genuinely sad. It's sad that the founders who generally have put in their blood, sweat and tears have to walk away from the dream. It's sad having to say goodbye to let go of the, the staff. And in the early days of a business, you tend not to have that many staff. And because you're all working so hard, there is a real team collective collegiateness. And, 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 and I think when you break that up, it can be very, very emotionally consuming. That said, I think there can be great lessons that come from that failure the great lessons around was it a product market fit issue that didn't allow this to scale? Was it a technology risk that we weren't able to to, to, to get over? Was it perhaps a relational breakdown? Quite often a uh, reason that companies fail is because founders don't get on well. There is relational turmoil between founders which is terribly sad as a as an investor and 
of course the the other reason is poor 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 decisions around 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 money management mm. and as an investor when you're trying to you know work with any portfolio company through these kinds of things at whatever stage they may be um what does that job look like for you and how's it different from the work you do with the sydney seed fund and uh, compared to right click capital what sort of different hats do you wear yeah well these days we're investing out of right click capital solely so the sydney seed fund investors have followed us into our new right click capital fund so at right click capital we're investing in the seed stage right up to series a plus so we're writing checks from fifty hundred thousand dollars up to a couple of million dollars and it does vary. I'd say that when there are companies at the early stage, it is no doubt more time consuming for us. And it looks like catching up for coffee, at coffee, working through a marketing plan. It is perhaps spending time on a customer call, as in visiting a customer with one or more of the founders or founding team. It is helping them with their financial statements, not so much doing the accounting for them, but working with them to identify what are the levers, what are perhaps some of the key metrics they need to be aware of, particularly as the, the runway or the amount of funding becomes less. As each day goes by, <laughs> you generally have less funding available. So we tend to work out what are some of the proof points or key milestones that need to be achieved in order for us to consider funding again or what we believe other investors would want to see before they express interest in funding. So in the early days, it is more hands-on. Quite often, we'll be on the telephone with, with founders. So I, I am often seen on the street with the phone glued to my ear and at other times it is catching up with them more casually as a business becomes a little more mature we try to provide feedback within board meetings mm -hmm. where you have a structured time to go through the financials to go through the plans of the business and to offer feedback on specific proposals or discussion papers i still think the best way to support a founder is 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 relationally by being a, a shoulder sometimes to cry on at other times it can be by providing people with a kick up the ass hey come on you told me that we would reach a target of 5000 you reached 4700 which is okay but it's 300 off 5000 i know you can do better come on we need to be at 5,000. So having those conversations, I think, is, 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 is where, where we can add value. And that as, as investors, I know that Gary, Ari and I, we find that personally gratifying. Yeah, and talking about that and where you can add value, another thing that I find interesting about the firm is that, um, well, the first time I interviewed you actually was around how investors can add value to um, to, to startups and you were saying that you invest in only companies that you really think you can add like a tangible value to That's and that right. you have expertise in. Yep. How did you develop that philosophy? 
I think we when we when we put this new fund together, and even with Sydney Seed Fund, we sat around the table and we thought, if we're going to be in a situation where we're not able to clearly articulate how we can help the business apart from just money, then it's likely the the business is not going to get the the the, the zing the the, the that, that that secret sauce that special blend of herbs and spices that i think that x factor that you need for success and therefore even a couple of weeks ago there was a great business that came across our desk some wonderful founders and as we as we looked into the business more we we looked at ourselves and we said we love it we think that we can probably make money for our investors in this one, but we said, will we be able to add that value? And the, the, answer, the answer is no, because it was a little bit outside of our field. And I think that we want to invest in things that we have a level of familiarity with. We're obviously keen to learn, but whether the value is based on the experiences we've had whether in software businesses, in marketplace businesses, in IoT type businesses, or whether it's value in the network that we know because of our business careers, we're able to connect the founders or the, the salespeople within the organization to, or whether it is because of our technical background, particularly within some of the, the artificial intelligence or around IoT and networking, or whether it is our international experience, being able to leverage the Draper Venture Network, which is a network of 16 worldwide venture capital firms where we can help portfolio companies grow into international markets, not just the US, where we have a, where we have a full-time secretariat of seven people, but whether it is into Asia or into South America or into Europe, I think being able to leverage those those connections to really grow a business, we 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 think that that that's our edge, that's our edge to drive a fantastic return for our investors, and uh, and for us to be a great partner, a business partner of the founders. And how have you seen um, founder understanding of this kind of grow over the last? few years or, or their acknowledgement that yes they need more than just the funding i think founders are becoming increasingly sophisticated i think founders are asking much better questions of their potential investors because there are some investors in market who will only focus on late stage businesses. You need to have revenue, maybe you need to have some level of EBIT or the ability to turn EBIT. You need to be in these types of markets. And those investors are fantastic at being able to help grow and support those founders. There are other firms who will specialize in a particular technology or sector or geography, and I think it's important for founders to continue this this savviness of working out what investors have previously invested in, what they what they say they like, and 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 to target accordingly. I think I think when speaking with investors, it's very important to to use your time judiciously. 
Yeah. And looking at other investors in the market in Australia at the moment, so obviously the title of this podcast is called Glass Ceiling and Mm -hmm. through it, um, James and I want to just highlight voices in the space that aren't straight white men, Mm -hmm. even though James is a white male himself. (laughs) But um, so obviously you're a, a... an Asian background. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Italian. But um, yeah, it, we were speaking uh, before recording about the fact that um, the investment space in Australia actually is pretty diverse as it is. There's a lot of women in the space. Um, how do you think that's come to be? I think that venture is a relatively young field in Australia. And what that means is that there are opportunities for people who are new to venture to to be part of venture. I think that's very, very exciting. I think when it comes to diversity, something that we've attempted, and I can't say that we've always succeeded at this, but I know that Ari and I hold this very close to our hearts, to ensure a a high level of diversity, a high level of diversity in the businesses that we've previously started. I think in one of them we counted the number of people who either came from a non-English speaking background or who was born out of Australia, I think at one stage was more than 60%, which I think is pretty good. Mm. And if you go and talk to people in the capital cities of Australia, we know that they are hugely mixed in terms of the languages, in terms of the backgrounds, the, the religions, etc., I think we need to continue uh, a, a path of diversity. I know that a lot of, of perhaps investors or, or, or folks who have been in the financial services market for many years may play to some of those stereotypes that you mentioned, but I I do believe that there is change and I think it's important for all of us to be supportive of that change, to embrace that change. And I'm, I'm, I'm really excited when I saw in our last intake of the Founder Institute, for instance, in Sydney, where we run a 13 week program for founders to build and validate their idea, I think we had over 40% of women in that cohort and we had more women than men who graduated at the end of those 13 weeks. That's incredible. It's it's good to see for me even as just, you know, a journalist writing about the space. It's You want to highlight those voices and highlight people who have you know, different backgrounds and stories to tell. And obviously the, the products that come out of that due to their, you know, different experiences. I think so. And, and, and I think those different experiences adds to the rich tapestry of, of, of life. But it also, if people want to be very commercially, commercially mercenary about it, 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 it does help with building a great business. I think great businesses tend to have a level of diversity and the fact is the world is a diverse place and therefore if you want to reach a whole bunch of customers, potential buyers of your product or service, then 
understanding them by understanding them with the, the folks on your team who may have an affinity with them is 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 pretty makes a lot of sense mm, as they say the the famous saying there's a lot of money to be made by taking women seriously or indeed people from any kind of background that isn't the stereotype i guess sure. and talking about that um regional businesses yes. is something we're very interested in here at startup daily through our silicon paddock initiative and mm-hmm. i know that's something you've written about yes before yes um I guess, how did that sort of come onto your, your radar? I remember being fortunate, this is some years ago, being part of a couple of discussion groups around the introduction of the NBN, the National Broadband Network. And I think if you cast your minds back five, seven years ago, when the NBN was starting to take shape, the prospect of being out in... Uh, remote town or perhaps a lower population city and being able to communicate with great ease with those in cities or internationally I think for me captured my imagination. The idea of someone perhaps having surgery being performed on them by a great surgeon out of Melbourne or out of Brisbane when you are perhaps far away to me is is uh, a wonderful feat not only of human invention but I think an innovation that potentially saves lives and certainly improves the quality of, 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 of health care. So I think for me seeing some of the early ideas and prototypes of the devices, a bunch of which were IoT, Internet of Things connected devices, I think twigged my mind that this this move to innovation, this move to to digitization, this move to the the technological age that some commentators say we're in, should not be limited to people who are in urban cities with postcodes of 3,000 or 3,000 to 3,100 or 4,000 or, or whatnot. They, they, they should be available to all. And I think in the same way, Australia has got very high rates of people who finish high school, finish years 10 and years 12. I think the more that we're able to educate people in the cities and outside of the cities to have a high level of technical and technological dexterity I think is going to allow us to take advantage of innovation whether it comes locally or whether it is exported to us. And um, how are you getting out to look for potential potential um, investments in, in the regions? Are you doing much of that? How are you getting out there? I, from time to time, get on the phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so whilst I, 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 I haven't done a lot of travel, 
to to regional areas. Oh, you should get on the Rex planes. We call I them. I should get you, on the Rex get, planes. Have a Rex experience, as okay, we say here well, at Startup Daily. Bring it on! Yeah, happy to <laughs> happy to give the Rex experience a go. I, I I think for me, I've stayed in touch with a number of friends and contacts who are in regional areas. I was chatting with one last week who was telling me about the huge amount of activity that's taking place in Geelong, an hour and a half or so out of Melbourne, and we were discussing about some programs to improve the, the access to mentors and programs in, in other smaller towns and cities. So I think, I think for me, it's, it's staying in touch with people and, and, and helping where I can. Fantastic. Well, Ben, I think that is pretty much all we have time for. Is there a parting message you wish to, to, to give to the listeners? Look, I'm so glad that we have more Australian founders than ever. And I'd encourage anyone who is looking to explore, perhaps explore the possibility of starting up to get involved, to, to join a meetup group, to join a, a, a collection of other founders, whether it's at a co-working space or whether it's taking part in this growing number of folks in what we call the startup ecosystem. It's definitely never been easier to start. Indeed. And they don't have to get That's permission right. from the dean to get an no, email address no, no, for one. No, no so. dean signature required <laughs> for this. Get on with it, give it a go, and I look forward to seeing your success. Wow, imagine having to ask permission from the dean at your university so you can have an email address. Those are very different times. Yeah, it's really absurd. I I think if that was me, I'd probably just carry away and wouldn't. You know what I mean? Like you, I think you need a lot of confidence to go to the dean and say, "Can I have an email address?" I know. And um I mean that's that's kind of what I was thinking like Surely, if if a founder now comes to yeah. Ben saying, you know, oh, this this thing is just, you know, so hard. Surely you'd be like, you have all <laughs> these tools available to you now that I didn't have, you know, like the process that he said they went through to get that first business up and running. It's crazy. Yeah, he had a really interesting reaction when you asked him that. I thought he was going to be like, yeah, but he, he wasn't. He was really He's very um, empathetic with yeah. founders, clearly, which is why, um, as well, I was really interested to hear about what it's like for investors when, you know, a portfolio mm. company um, doesn't make it through. Um because you remember when we were speaking to Kara Frederick from Reinventure and she said, you know, investors accept that, you know, after, you know, all the work they go through to, to find the right companies to invest in, they still acknowledge that the likelihood is that not all of them are going to, you know, make it out to the other side, so yeah. to speak. So, um, yeah, but you never sort of, I guess, hear from investors around what, what that's actually like especially you know when when you've invested at the seed level and as Ben said the relationship is really quite close because there aren't a lot of investors around the table mm. at that point and you know it yeah it was it was interesting yeah and like off that and you know on the topic of being intimate with you know that sort of group um I think the the way he put it in a sentence was that 
a lot of his role and the role of the investors is to be a, a shoulder to cry on. Mm. Um, that was, yeah, that was fascinating because like I, in my head, I can imagine those sort of scenarios happening, but I mean, I think that's the thing, right? For, for a lot of us, the view that we, or the image we have in our mind of, you know, the, the startup space or investment is a very stereotypical, you know, Silicon Valley, Valley, sorry, based sort of idea. Whereas as Ben was kind of saying, the space here is so much smaller. People really know each other Mm -hmm. Um, where, yeah, I think they do develop that kind of relationship where an investor is the shoulder to cry on. So, yeah. Yeah. He made it very clear, like straight off the bat, um, to us really that Australia is at least in terms of like a lot of things um, including diversity like uh, you know a step ahead of you know Silicon Valley yeah sort still of, not perfect but it's, yeah it's different yeah. exactly right it's not sort of the scrummage um, <laughs> yeah of controversy over there yeah I mean again I, I, I think it would be different but um, you know who knows what is below the surface mm, I mean when yeah. things were coming out in the US um there were, you know, then things in the media here around some things that have happened, but I would hope that it's not at the same level and, you know, that... Yeah, but as Ben pointed out, I guess people are becoming more aware of, you know, different points of view and about these issues and, you know, having a conversation around that table. Yeah, and the the importance, just like the business value of having diverse points of view and, mm. and opinions around the table and how that can help the the startup sector grow. So very interesting conversation with Ben. Thanks again to Ben for taking the time to chat to us and thank you to everyone who has listened. Yes, that is uh, the that is all for this episode That's of it. Glass Ceiling. Um, if you want to listen to any of those that have come before, just um, look look at where you found this podcast. That's um, it. Whether it's on iTunes, Stitcher, um, Google Play, or on the Startup Daily website, um, have a look to find the other episodes. And if you feel like it, um, rate the podcast and leave us a review because that helps others find it and if you're in the mood uh, for other podcasts you should check out um, Startup Meets Corporate which I host along with our founder Matt Beachy. 